Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Japan may have once seemed like a world away, but the most delicious elements of Japanese food and drink culture have increasingly become embedded in our American psyche. For instance, when Westerners think of Japanese spirits, Sake is the image that most likely comes to mind. But on this week's show, author Christopher Pellegrini introduces us to shochu, one of the most popular libations in Japan and one of the best-kept secrets everywhere else. Next, we hear from Stephen Lyman, author of The Complete Guide to Japanese Drinks, who recounts the intriguing history of Takamine Koji whiskey and the remarkable 19th century Japanese immigrant whose work inspired it. My favorite part of his tale involves a trip to New Orleans for the 1884 World's Fair, where he met and later married a local socialite. Finally, in Japan, drinks are always accompanied by snacks, often in a bar and eatery called an izukayu. Restaurateur Jackie Blanchard drops by to explain how a girl from down the bayou came to open an authentic izukayu right here on Oak Street in the Crescent City. So sit back and raise a glass as we celebrate the Japanese drinking culture on this week's Louisiana Eats. My name is Christopher Pellegrini, at your service. I'm the author of the Shoju Handbook and the founder of Honkaku Spirits, an importer of Shoju and Awamori from Japan. Christopher Pellegrini's passion for brewing and distilling was ignited by a high school social studies project that led to him becoming a 17-year-old brewmaster. Eventually, that affinity steered him to Tokyo, where he's made a life sharing his love of Japanese spirits. I understand that you originally hail from Vermont, and you are such a mad fermenter. (laughs) You were brewing beer in your closet at one time? That is correct. (laughs) The result of a U.S. history course, a project that I was assigned, was to create a period-appropriate newspaper. And the decade that I was given was the decade of prohibition. Now, when I went to Middlebury College to use their library resources and to flip through microfiche for mornings on end, it turned out that in the teens there was a whole lot of bootlegging going on, a lot of bathtub gin being made. 
And I did eventually create that newspaper, but my research took a little bit of a U-turn and I dove into brewing. If it's that easy to make it at home, maybe I should do so too. And that's eventually what happened. I started home brewing in my closet. <laughs> my good friend who happened to be working with me on the newspaper, uh, Jesse, he helped me out. We had our own brand. We were called Last Call Brewing. And we had three popular types of ale that we made. And it was pretty good after a while. Yeah, so I started out real young. Yes, it was highly suspect and not above board, but it set me on the course to where I am today because I developed a keen sense of craft brewed, craft distilled products. Man, I am so interested in those things. After my parents found out about my home brewing proclivities, uh-huh. yeah. my father was a principal at the local junior high school. My mother is a deacon in the Episcopal Church. They were not impressed. And <laughs> so they, they're very upstanding citizens, and their, their eldest son was clearly not following the letter of the law uh-huh. or the spirit of the law, no pun intended. And I turned that into, after they shut down my home brewing operation, I turned <laughs> that into a, an apprenticeship at the local microbrewery. Fast forward. Now now I'm like the biggest, most annoying underage beer snob you've ever met in your life because one fateful week when I was working at Otter Creek Brewing in Middlebury, Vermont, our first brewer wrecked his back, was in bed for a couple months, and our second brewer, and I am not making this up, left the state to join the circus. <laughs> so all of a sudden, we didn't have anybody who could make beer. And Mr. Lawrence Miller... The former home brewer himself, who turned that into a business, came in and is like, does anybody up in here know how to make beer? And little 17-year-old me was like, I do. <laughs> I believe his exact words were when he looked at our cellar master, was like, the kid? <laughs> and Tom, the cellar master, was like, you know, if he doesn't drink it, he can legally make it. And that's how I became the youngest commercial brewer in the United States. I was too young to drink what I was making. And that turned me into an annoying beer snob. I was immensely proud of what I was doing. But it also thrust me even deeper into my passion for and appreciation of these handmade small batch drinks. Yeah, well, you know, how blessed you are to have found that path so young. And so how would you get to Tokyo? I followed a girl. Ah, in 2002? (laughs) That's right. Yeah, 2002. I was living in Korea at the time. Boy meets girl. Girl hates her job. So girl wanted to get the heck out of Dodge. And that happened to involve Tokyo. And boy was like, yeah, sure. I'll go wherever you want to go. And fast forward 20 years, we're still there. We're married now. And yeah, everything's going okay. So where does your shochu adventure begin? That started very early in my tenure in Tokyo, Japan, where I have been now for almost 21 years. One day, my now wife had a part-time job while she was going to language school, and she would get off work pretty late, and I would go to the train station to meet her and walk home with her because my work day ended much earlier. And I started stopping off at this little izakaya, little gastropub, 
that focused on sake. So the drink that most people, when they think of Japan, they think of sake, right? Right. I think that's fair. That's very fair. And that's the correct pronunciation as well. It's not sake. It's, it's sake. sake. Yeah. So just pronounce Japanese words like you would pronounce them in Spanish. The vowels are very close in that ah. sense. And that'll help you pronounce most things correctly. So I was studying, shall we say, sake. I was doing research, I guess. I was just drinking my way across the fridge back and forth. Mm-hmm. And then one day, it was raining, I seem to remember, so nobody else was coming in. It was just me. I didn't speak any Japanese at the time other than to be able to say, no foam on my beer, please. That was about the only thing I could say in Japanese. <laughs> and the bartender, who didn't speak any English, was bored and started to mess with me. And I'm not going to give this foreigner anymore sake. I'm going to push this spirit in front of him. So he gave me a barley shochu, my first ever exposure to that. I put my nose in. I was like, that's not sake. He's like, no, shochu, drink it. So I sipped it. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And he's like, oh. I did not expect that reaction. Let me give him something that he might not like. So he pushed a sweet potato shochu in front of me next, and I put my nose in it. And I was like, well, that's not shochu. He's like, yes, it is. I'm like, no, the, if the first one was shochu, this is not shochu. And a tasting developed. I had five different types of shochu side by side. I remember he pushed a brown, a kokuto sugar shochu in front of me. I also tried a rice shochu, and I think the fifth one was actually a buckwheat shochu and they were all clear as water and they were all ridiculously different in their flavor profile and their attack and i was just like what is this shochu s-h-o-c-h-u i was like what Uh, huh what i've never heard of it before where do they make it of course this was a very difficult conversation because we did not have a common language yes and he's like down south like can i take the train there no you should probably fly So I did. And that was the beginning of the rabbit hole. I would go down there at every chance I could. I used to be a university professor. And on the weekends, I would fly down to Kyushu and I would work in the distilleries. I would help them out. They were always short-staffed. You know, they never had enough people to stir the pots, clean the potatoes, chop them open, prep them, that sort of thing. So I did that a lot. And I made over the years, because I had no ulterior motive, I just wanted to learn. I'm helping these folks out in Japan. And then an opportunity comes to take it to the next level. So we start an import company in New York. And we assembled a portfolio of all of our friends, shochu and aomori. These are really small products in Japan. Stuff that you you can check me on this. Shochu nerds in Japan are annoyed that we have them in the States because it shortchanges their supply in Japan. I get a lot of passive-aggressive DMs. They're like, Pellegrini, come on, man. Stop yanking (laughs) that out of circulation over here. We don't get enough of it. There are legitimately some things in my portfolio, in our portfolio, that I cannot source in Tokyo, but you can get them in New Orleans. I mean, there is more shochu produced and consumed in Japan every year than sake, as I said. And to give you a sense of scale, there is more shochu and awamori produced in Japan every year than tequila in Mexico. Oh. Now. Well, now you're confusing me. (laughs) Isn't that, that scale is crazy. This is a very large part of the Japanese drinks economy that nobody outside of Japan has ever heard of. About two thirds of of tequila is exported, right? Much Uh of it coming here. 
less than one-tenth of one percent of shoju and aomori ever leaves Japan. It is this giant thing hiding in plain sight that keep all the best stuff for themselves. They're not sharing yet. And we're trying to change that because it is amazing. As you notice, this is a very complex spirit on the nose. It's very complex on the nose. And then it does have some sweetness to it. But on the the back palate, like, I I totally get the mushroom thing. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very rich. It's Uh got a nice savoriness to it. There's an umami component. Yeah, I was going to just proudly say that. (laughs) It does indeed. And that's thanks, of course, to these long fermentations. It's thanks to the koji. Koji is Japan's national mold. And I know that sounds incredibly sexy to a lot of you out there. But if you think about hmm. all of the other moldy things that we like to eat, like cheese, oh, of right, course. like salami, right? Of course. It's so important to food culture. And koji is used to make miso and soy sauce. All sake is made from koji. It helps with the fermentation process. It doesn't ferment anything by itself. It's not yeast. It shouldn't be confused with yeast. Right. This it's, is an, an aspergillus mold? That's correct. Now, you wrote this book it's it almost a decade ago. Right. And in the book, you wrote about the future, you know, about the American reception to shochu and how you were hoping that Americans would come around and appreciate it and get to see it. And I believe that your wish has come true. My goodness, um, Chef Jose Andreas, one of the greatest chefs in the world, one of the most wonderful people, he appreciates it and he's on the bandwagon, huh? It has changed. It has gotten so much better with the help of so many people over the past half decade. I am incredibly op- optimistic now, much more than, so than I was in 2014 when I first published the Shochu Handbook. It's been really gratifying. It's been so nice to just run into people and they're like, oh, no, I, know, I actually know what Shochu is. I kind of have figured out that I'm more of a barley person or I'm more of a rice Shochu person or I really like sweet potato. Once you get into sweet potato, there's no turning back. It's ah. just like that's like you will always be a sweet potato person once you get there. And it's been really fun to see how people are experiencing it. And it's also thanks to Koji and Koji in the kitchen. A lot of chefs are working with Koji Uh to add these new layers of flavor, this new layer of tenderizing for meat that Koji brings. And yes, Mr. Andres is, is in it now. And they are constantly asking us to help train their staff, help get people in on the ground floor. Where is the best way for people to set out as Americans to get some, to taste some? What do you recommend? There are going to be a number of bottle shops around the country that carry an array of shochu and awamori. So that's a good place to start. And if if your local doesn't carry it, just ask for it because they can source it. There are some online purveyors. And Drizzly, of course, is a good way to figure out who has what. That's always a, a shortcut. One place that is a lot of fun in, you know, that ships across the country is a place called Umami Mart, U-M-A-M-I, out in 
Oakland, California, and they ship to many, many states. There are other uh, vendors out there as well. I know there's a couple of places in New York, and they, you know, they will ship well, to you. Great. Yeah, you great. do have options if you're looking for it online. Go ahead and get out there and find that show, Chew, and drink it any way you want because it is really interesting. It and is. I'm so grateful that you brought this to our attention. And thanks so much for coming to see us. No, it's entirely my pleasure. This is a, a fantastic place to visit. And uh, it has been a distinct pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for the warm welcome. And thank you for helping me spread the word about Japan's best kept secrets. That was Christopher Pellegrini, author of the Shochu Handbook. Coming up next, we'll dive even deeper into this spirited subject with Stephen Lyman, author of The Complete Guide to Japanese Drinks. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt nothing artificial. Crystal hot sauce. Step out of the heat and into the flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Camellia is celebrating their centennial with innovations for today's lifestyle. Beans for two. If a bag of beans is too big for your family, Camellia's New Orleans-style red beans for two and Cajun-style white beans for two has everything needed for dinner in today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. I'm Stephen Lyman, author of The Complete Guide to Japanese Drinks and co-creator of Takamine Koji Whiskey. One of the most intriguing aspects of Stephen's book is the origin story of Koji Whiskey, the Japanese liquor that was developed in the 19th century, not by a distiller, but by a chemist, who did his work not in Japan, but in the United States. Oddly enough, this story actually begins in New Orleans, where the delegation from Japan to the 1884 World's Fair was led by a young chemist named Jokichi Takamine, 
who at the time was known for his work with indigo dyes. But upon coming here, because he was the son of a samurai, he was treated as royalty by the local American delegation. And as a result, he was invited to all of the best parties, the balls, the dinners, invited into people's homes, and really treated like must have been so uncommon for an Asian person to have been treated in the United States at that time. And certainly here in New Orleans to have gotten in and mixed in all those circles. While in New Orleans, he made two key contacts, actually three. He met a farmer who wanted fertilizer. And that is only relevant for the next part of the story because he met and fell in love with a young woman named Caroline Hitch. She was a debutante. She was 18 years old. He was 30 at the time. And the feelings were mutual. He must have been quite charming. Now, he, he spoke English, which was very uncommon for a Japanese at that time. Mm-hmm. He was born in 1854, which was the year after Japan opened to the West for the first time in hundreds of years. And because he was a son of a samurai, they invested in his education. He was sent to Nagasaki, where he studied English, with a Dutch merchant, because the Dutch were the only people that could trade with Japan at the time, the only Western people. So he spoke English with a Dutch accent his entire life. So I can imagine a Dutch-accented, English-speaking Japanese person in New Orleans must have been uh, quite a hit. Now, before we continue too much further, there's another pretty famous New Orleans resident that he meets at this time. Okay. He met Lafcadio Hearn. And Lafcadio Hearn, later in life, credited Jokichi Takamine with his interest in Japan And Lafcadio Hearn moved to Japan and became an incredibly famous author. So he and Caroline fall in love. And then what happens? Well, he didn't have any money. Ah! He was a young government employee. I'm sure they didn't pay very well. So he actually returned to Japan. And he ended up starting Asia's first superphosphate mine and sold his first shipment of phosphate fertilizer to that farmer that he met here at the World's Fair. And that made his first fortune. So he came back to New Orleans in 1887 and married Caroline. He takes her back to Japan. Japan at that time was modernizing, but it was still very, very conservative. And very few people would have spoken English. And women didn't really leave the house on their own at that time. Exactly. That When I think about a New Orleans debutante in the late 1800s in Japan, I would think she'd be pretty miserable. She was by all accounts. Fortunately, and this is more evidence that her parents had taken to Jokichi, her mother actually invited them to move to Chicago to start a business here in the United States. If it's a New Orleans story, what's the mom doing in Chicago? Well, the the family, the Hitch family, was very well connected. Uh They were quite wealthy themselves. And they had met the president of the Illinois Whiskey Trust, a man named Joseph Greenhut. Now, the Illinois Whiskey Trust was responsible for making 80% of distilled alcohol in America at that time. They had 65 distilleries across the country. This sounds like the ideal place for a young man who wants to make a new kind of alcohol. Jokichi figured out how to use Japanese koji fermentation rather than malting to make whiskey, which had never been done before. In fact, The process was so revolutionary, he decided to patent it. So he receives this patent. It's approved. He licenses it to the Whiskey Trust. They begin experimentation, 
at the Manhattan Distillery in Peoria, Illinois. It wasn't Manhattan, New York. It was just confusingly named the Manhattan Distillery. And in September of 1891, there's an article in the Chicago Tribune with the headline, Whiskey to Become Cheaper. And that meant that somebody else was going to be hurt. And that's the maltsters, the people who make malted grains for whiskey production. And if this was successful, they were going to reduce the price of whiskey by around 20%. And the maltsters couldn't compete with that. So there was a mysterious fire at the Manhattan distillery. An accelerant was used, but nobody was ever caught. Jokichi was able to escape through the cellar. Uh, with his life, uh, but it took a couple of years for them to rebuild and continue their experiments. But fortunately, they did begin commercial production of Koji whiskey in December of 1894, and he was legitimately the first Japanese person to ever make whiskey. Unfortunately, this success was not long-lived. When the fire didn't stop Jokichi, industry opposition turned to political influence and an obscure antitrust law called the Sherman Act to do its dirty work. It was not used during the 19th century except this time. The only use of the Sherman Act was to break up the Illinois Whiskey Trust. So that was the end for Koji Whiskey, but certainly not the end for Joe Kichi. That's right. He wasn't an alcohol producer. That was never his occupation or his passion. His passion was for applied chemistry. And he did something that I think would make him even successful today, and that's that he he created patents for products, but he never made those products. He licensed those patents to other companies and collected the royalties so he could continue his creativity. In parallel to his whiskey patent, he also patented the use of something that he called takadiastase, which was a digestive aid, and he licensed this medication to the Park Davis Company. So he was doing fine even without the whiskey being successful because takadiastase became a quite popular digestive aid. It also uses koji. He made a scientific discovery much more important than that. Jokichi Takamine was the first person to isolate a human hormone. That's right. He, he isolates adrenaline, which is the first isolate of a human hormone in human history. This should have won him a Nobel Prize. But, of course, you have a Japanese immigrant working in the United States at the time and all that that entails. But he also licensed to the Park Davis Company, and this made him absolutely fabulously wealthy. He made that discovery in 1900, so three years after he moved to New York. By 1905, his net worth was, in 1905 dollars, about $30 million, which is over a billion dollars today. With all of that phenomenal wealth, He was very generous, and he did incredible things that people are still appreciating today, like the cherry trees in Washington, D.C. That's right. Late in life, he donated the cherry blossom trees to Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Maryland, and New York City. Well over 2,000 trees were donated. It was a private donation. But in American history books, it's not Jokichi Takamine, it's the president's wife. It's the first lady who was responsible for the cherry trees. Well, all I can say is thank goodness for you because Jokichi might finally get his due, and the due is coming through a bottle of his whiskey that you have revived. 
Stephen, how did you come into this story? Why <laughs> did this become your obsession? And tell us the amazing story about your whiskey. So I discovered the story of Jokichi Takamine when I was doing research for my book. There had been a doctoral dissertation written about him at University of Dayton in Ohio 10, 20 years ago. And reading it, I was just fascinated that this man had done all of these things. I'd never heard of him. The first distiller to ever ask me to import Japanese spirits to the United States was a distiller named Michiaki Shinozaki. He also knew the Takamine story. In fact, he had been doing some experiments. He was the son of the president of the company, so he had a little bit of free, free reign. And he had, he had begun doing some experiments with double pot distillation of koji, a barley koji spirit. And while that's not Takamine's exact recipe, it's pretty close. And so we decided that we wanted to honor Dr. Takamine. So we approached his family trust for permission to use his name and likeness for this whiskey, and they gave it to us. And it's the first product they've allowed his name to be used on that they themselves did not create. Walk me through the taste profile and what makes Takamine so different from other whiskeys that people may have tried. Now, this is a 40% alcohol whiskey, which is actually the lowest proof that you're allowed to have a whiskey. Uh, if it goes below 40%, it's no longer whiskey. And a lot of whiskey fans think of lower proof whiskeys as not that interesting. What makes this interesting is it's going into the cask at about 44% alcohol, where other whiskeys might be 65, 70% alcohol. Right. So you actually are adding a lot of water, even if you're only bringing it down to 50%. Mm. Here we're adding very little water. So this it really punches above its weight. And because of the location of the distillery in southern Japan, it's almost like we were aging in almost like we're aging in New Orleans, where in a hot humid environment you would have a very uh, rapid aging. So at eight years old, this really expresses as something older. But this what I get with this whiskey in smelling it, I get it of course vanilla, which you get in many cascaged products. But on the palate, I get notes of cherry and creme brulee and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of people who tell me, I don't even like whiskey, but I like your whiskey because it's smooth, it's easy drinking, and it doesn't burn out your taste buds because it's not such high alcohol. I've never been a scotch drinker, and this is completely different. I mean, it's, right. it's different in so many ways. And it has a, just a really soft mouthfeel. Mm -hmm. Part of that is the Japanese water. Uh, Kyushu Island, where the distillery is, is one of the youngest islands in the Japanese archipelago, which means that the mountains are steeper and the rain runoff is faster, and that gives you softer water. And that even though there's just a little bit of water used in dilution, you still get that softness on the palate. What a beautiful product and what a beautiful story. I'm so grateful to have met you. Thank you for coming to talk with us on Louisiana Eats. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Stephen Lyman, author of The Complete Guide to Japanese Drinks and co-creator of Takamine Koji Whiskey.
Sukiban is the name of Jacqueline Blanchard's Izikayu, a traditional Japanese bar and eatery. What does Sukiban mean? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from Visit the North Shore, discover world-class culinary flavors on the North Shore this fall. Experience the bounty of the bayou and the rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, Request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at visitthenorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, Louisiana's easy escape, just 40 minutes from New Orleans' French Quarter. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What does the Japanese word sukiban mean? Sukiban roughly translates as girl boss or delinquent girl. Sukiban is what they called girl gang leaders in Japan back in the 1970s and 80s. In her NOLA.com article about Jackie Blanchard's restaurant, food writer Beth Dodano said badass is a fine equivalent and describes Blanchard's skills to a T. Let's hear more about what our friend Jackie is up to at Sukiban. My name is Jacqueline Blanchard. I am the executive chef and owner of Sukiban, as well as owner of Catelier on Oak Street, Uptown New Orleans. Despite its French name, Jackie Blanchard's knife shop, Coutillier, imports most of its high-end cutlery from Japan. During her many trips across the Pacific to meet with Japanese knife makers, Jackie fell in love with traditional izukayas. These casual Japanese bars offer simple, elegant dishes to pair with your sake or Sapporo. Inspired, Chef Jackie, whose resume includes stints in some of the top kitchens in the country, set out on her first solo restaurant venture, launching Sukiban in 2022. So how did this Cajun girl, raised on Bayou Lafouche, end up crossing the world to open a Japanese izukaya in New Orleans? Jackie tells us her story. 
I think that, you know, Japanese cuisine to me now has become such a huge part of my, my life, my soul, and, and representing it with respect is all I ever want to do. The journey that led me there, um, you know, was kind of long and arduous, but it definitely turned me into, you know, this version of me that loves and represents and respects this cuisine and this culture and this country that is so deeply rooted in history. So, you know, I grew up in Pankerville, Louisiana, um, between Pankerville and Napoleonville, um, in Assumption Parish along Bayou Lafourche. My mom's side uh, is from Pankerville, my dad's side is from Napoleonville, so always been on the bayou. Um, went to Nickel State, um, the most amazing culinary program kind of underseen in America. It's, it's really a beautiful program. So, you know, I, I graduated college, culinary school, right after Katrina, and that took me right to California, um, to Napa Valley, to work for Thomas Keller. There was a lot of technique involved, um, rooted in not just French cuisine, but also Japanese technique when I got to the French Laundry, when I've, you know, gone to Blue Hill. A lot of these places I've worked um, have had that level of Japanese technique because it is so dialed in and it is so diligent. Um, so, you know, you need that sort of diligence in your technique when you're working in, you know, these caliber of Michelin star restaurants. So, you know, I, I met a lot of people who, you know, instilled a lot of those techniques in me, even outside of the restaurant itself, um, just, you know, becoming friends. And then my travels took me to all over Asia. I spent a lot of time traveling Southeast Asia, um, which in turn led me to Japan because I had a friend I met actually when she staged um, at Restaurant August here years ago. I had never been to Japan at that point, so she, you know, invited me anytime I was traveling that way to, you know, please stop through Tokyo. I'm moving back. Uh, so I ended up in Tokyo hanging out with her and staying with her and her family. And, you know, she has this beautiful restaurant, uh, this tiny little cafe called Mike in Tokyo, and she cooks vegan food. And so she really opened my eyes to a lot more of the technique and a lot more of the spectrum of what was available in that, and that really put me on a path to falling in love with Japanese food. And at that point, I was not in the knife business. You know, this was me traveling, I was still cooking professionally. Um, I, you know, kind of gone down to Singapore and back and ended up in Japan and really fell in love with everything um, food-wise. Um, did the tuna auction at the Tsukiji market, you know, saw these guys breaking down these huge, you know, 300-pound tuna. Um, and exposing myself to that, I think, was what kind of lit me on fire for, you know, sort of like where I am now with my love of that country, that culture, that cuisine, the technique. I think a lot of um, the decisions that were made to open the knife shop after that trip were, were certainly like paramount to that experience. We opened Cotillier in 2015, it was August 2015. Um, and I think that when I started Cotillier, I always approached it the way a chef would approach sourcing their ingredients like you would from a farmer or fisherman. Um, and traveling to Japan and creating those relationships and those, those deep bonds and connections that you get with these families, you know, who are generations old, you know, craftsmen making these beautiful 
knives and tools uh, for chefs to use. And I feel like it's, you know, people think sometimes when we go on these trips to Japan, it's just like vacation and we're kind of hanging out and, and, and we're, we're, we're not. We're, you know, we're in this like very serious schedule and we're, you know, we're seeing how these knives are made. We're, we're going to these izakayas and we're trying this different food. And I think, you know, as many times as I've traveled there over the last decade, um, you feel like, you know, you're kind of inching your way in, but Japan's kind of got this like membrane between you between the foreign world and it. And it's like this membrane you can just like poke your finger and keep pushing through, you'll never penetrate it. Um, as long as you know you, you try and you, you travel there and you, you learn the language as much as possible and you have these amazing relationships with these families who now are almost part of your family. You know, we get invited to, um, to have you know, dinner, we stay in their homes. Um, it's this beautiful, beautiful relationship that we've built over the last 10 years. And, you know, to have that, you know, sort of experience is just, it's, it's hard to describe sometimes. The places we've been all around Japan, Japan is so different and, you know, it's, you know, geographical locations, you know, um, the people from Osaka, I think, are more akin to people from New Orleans because they're a little bit more jovial and they, they work hard during the day and they play hard at night. You know, Tokyo is a little more of that, like an East Coast New York vibe. Like, it, you know, everything's a little bit different. So it's really cool to see that difference in what it's represented and its food and its, you know, food ways and its culture, like all around that country. So, you know, you try to take a little bit of each experience and bring that back. I think that for me, I always had a part of me that wanted my own restaurant. Um, and I knew that when I kind of took a break to open Gatelier, I think that I always had this like, you know, little gnat in the back of my ear, you know, one day you're going to open a restaurant. It doesn't have to be right now. It could be when you're 40. It could be later. Who's to say? So as well as it has gone the last seven years, um, it kind of gave me time to iron out what I wanted to do and the approach I wanted to take to that. And I think that I've been through enough restaurants and I've seen restaurants succeed and I've seen them fail and I've seen the reasons why they succeed and fail. And I've taken, you know, these incredible notes and um, over the years that have, you know, kind of shaped the direction I wanted to take. So I think it became about how can I do this and still have this quality of life? And I wanted to do something very small scale. I don't want something big. I wanted a small, approachable sort of scene. Izakaya at its core, it literally translates uh, to like stay drink place. So it can be anything, you know, I think there was a lot of that in the beginning or like, is this an izakaya or is this a sushi restaurant? It's really kind of like a modernized izakaya. I mean, at its core, it's a bar where you're sitting down and you're ordering drinks and you're 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 eating food. So that's it. You know, when I go to Osaka and I hang out with my buddy, my knife buddies, they're taking us out izakaya hopping all night long, and you're going from one to the next to the next, because an izakaya has a million iterations. You know, I think some people think, oh, an izakaya has to have yakitori. An izakaya can serve whatever food it wants. And Izakaya is just a place where you go and sit down and you have some drinks and you have some bites and then you kind of move on. Or if you want to stay for three hours, you can stay for three hours. You want to stay for 30 minutes and grab a quick bite and head out, 
you can do that too. You know, and I think that's the beauty of an izakaya at its core. Um, and it, it can be a million different iterations. We're just one of them. Right now we have 16 seats and we have one table. So it's, you know, it's pretty small and, you know, we do focus on one particular thing and that's tamaki rolls, which, you know, there's a lot of sushi restaurants in New Orleans. There's just not a lot of focus on that particular style of sushi. And for me, it's always been about rice and fish. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I always correlate back to South Louisiana culture is our connection of rice, seafood, our drinking culture, which is exactly what I feel with Japan. And I think a lot of people don't really think of it that way. Like you have these two foreign, very foreign entities. You have Japan, you have Cajun culture of South Louisiana. And so I think that, you know, in the simplicity of what we do, we do feature, you know, South Louisiana seafood. You know, and that's a huge part of what we do. And, you know, the, even the potato salad we have, this, you know, it's one of the most popular menu items. Potatoes that we have potato salad culture here. Everybody's mama has a potato salad recipe. Um, some eat it with gumbo, some eat it on the side. In Japan, when you go to an izakaya, there's always a potato salad on the menu, which I think was so cool. And I was, you know, kind of floored by that the first time I experienced it. But then I started seeing it everywhere I went in Japan. Um, so little things like that, those types of, um, you know, food references sort of kind of resonated back into the type of food I wanted to do. Um, I grew up on rice, you know, just like a lot of us did in South Louisiana. So for me, it was about the rice and the seafood. And I think that is the main focus of what we do in a way. And we don't make a fuss about things. We don't have a lot of sauces. We don't have you know, the mangoes and the the spicy mayos and all that kind of stuff. We let our ingredients speak for itself. You know, it is this level of simplicity, but but high hyper focus. I think the most beautiful thing about Japanese food and approach to the technique is its simplicity because it really has nothing to hide behind. It's all about the ingredient. My connections through Japan allowed me to be able to source certain ingredients for sukiban that um, otherwise would have been unattainable in a lot of ways. I think I'm trying to do some, something a little bit more, you know, of our style in South Louisiana, but I'm really trying to stay true to the traditional methods in which a lot of these items are, are made, you know, the way the fish is cut, the way the rice is cooked, uh, the diligence to the preparation. These are all very, you know, traditional Japanese techniques. So there is that in within it, um, but I'm certainly trying to, like, put my stamp on it. I've definitely had a lot of, uh, you know, Japanese clientele come in and, and, and give me the thumbs up, which <laughs> is, 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 you know... All I want to do is is make sure that I'm sticking true to the diligence and respect of that culture and in its like most infinite way. Jackie Blanchard of Coutillier and Sukiban in New Orleans. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. 
Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, Visit the North Shore, and Camellia Beans, celebrating their centennial with an innovative new product, Beans for Two. Camellia's new Red Beans for Two and White Beans for Two include everything needed to cook two authentically seasoned bowls of beans, scaled for today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. And from D'Agostino Pasta, celebrating our culture with fleur-de-lis, crawfish, and alligator-shaped pastas. All handcrafted in Louisiana, just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, with writing contributions from Becky Retz, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.